So, like, a couple times in your career, I guess you guys didn't have the songs all written before you went in. Yeah, a couple of times. Big mistake. It's such a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so bad, right? But you don't know that until you until you fuck it up, right? <laughs> no, you don't. Yeah. So we try to write ahead as much as we can because yeah. you just don't want to be on episode nine and not have episode yeah. 11 written. I mean, you think in the back of your mind that this is going to be exhilarating. But then you're like, your your sphincter is like this small. No, totally. Because, uh, well, well, you count on your subconscious, right? At a certain point, you do count on your subconscious to be doing this yeah. work, don't you? That's right. But, and often it does. And then, and, but sometimes if you're not prepared ahead of time, mm-hmm. you really put yourself in a yeah. bad spot. Oh. And as I got older, uh, the more time I wanted. And I tried to slow down my production schedule as I got older because I like to leave it and come back to it because that's the only way you can regain any sort of objectivity, right? Oh, I love process stuff. Yeah. This is great. Um, So you're saying you would consciously build time in in the writing part of it or in the recording? You'd want to be able to record, walk away from it, hear it again? Both. You know, for me... uh, my partner Alex, uh, he's got a very different mindset. So we would write something and demo it, and then he would listen to it like six hundred thousand times. And I don't do that, you know. At the end of the day, I walk away from it and I don't listen to it. And I come back in the morning and I turn on the tape, and I love my first impression because that's the most objective I'm going to be all day. And so as that process goes, I try to maintain that. And once we do a whole bunch of work together, uh, I would walk away, like we take a two-week two break, and during that two weeks, I wouldn't listen to it at all. And Alex, of course, is writing copious notes. Obsessively listening all and the time. And then I come back the first day, and I just want to be left alone with it, and I spend you know an hour or two listening to it and writing notes because I really rely on that initial instinct that you know disappears after five listens you you've already lost it you're uh well you've also become engaged yeah because you've become engaged in a way you suddenly have a stake yeah and you and you listen to the bass part and you go okay i like that i like that next thing you know you're falling in love with the song again and then you've lost your objectivity could that uh that time through when you're listening could you make a decision at that point not just about a mix but decide uh hey i want to change the way i sang that verse or Absolutely. I want to re-record yeah. the bass, or could you call Neil and say that line yeah. is sounding funky? Yeah, or we, I, I say, you know, this song is just not working. You know, this song is just not good enough. You know, we have to rethink this. We have to step back. Those are scary moments. Did you yeah. get better at dealing with those moments as your career progressed? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, as you get more confidence and confidence in your judgment, uh, the only good thing about aging, I might add, is that you get more confident in your judgment, and uh, those decisions become easier. But then you have to sell them, to, sell that idea to your partners, which is not always so easy. But uh, I was very fortunate in that I worked with two fairly rational people uh, from all my career, and if you made the the case intelligently, they would, you know, listen. That's a real gift. Uh, especially in creative matters, finding the ability to argue, not to even argue, but to sort of negotiate creative terrain rationally using sort of rational, even um, like rational rhetorical techniques as opposed to emotive techniques. Yes. Right? But that's also a function of youth. When you're young, you know, the louder voice usually wins. Uh, And uh, as you get older, and you learn how your partners think a little bit, you can you know, reach them on their level. And Neil has uh, always been a terrific uh, collaborator, a great writing partner because he listens to logic. You know, He functions on that level. So, and he also is one of the few uh, composers and, and uh, people I've ever worked with that is he's happy to have done it in the first place, whether you use it or not. So that's a really unique characteristic in a, in a songwriter. So, I mean, a lot of people say they care about process, not result. Yeah. Very few people live that, right? Yeah, yeah he does. Almost no artist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all artists say it. <laughs> yes. But almost no yeah. artists live Actually that. live that. They want, I mean, they, yeah. we all want, yeah. most of us want some kind of reaction from it. Of course. 
Uh, and it's cool. he's better at it than I am. I mean, like if he comes to me, then it's a different story. You know, I'm a little more of a hard <laughs> oh, ass. Really? If he says, "Do the riff," <laughs> can we make that riff? You better? want to change my bass? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. I like the riff. Yeah, yeah. The other thing about getting, getting older with this stuff is that the sense of you get more confident in your judgment, and also that the sense of initial panic when the thing isn't working right. recedes a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, Be, because you you're like, okay, well, I've I've lived the every time I see a first cut mm-hmm. um, of an episode, it's bad. You know, it's almost always not close to what it's going to be. Right, and I used to freak out. Yeah, you weren't able to project. And it's, is that also about trusting who you work with? But so much of it is about trust. Yeah. Yeah. All that. My partner and I, like you, as I was saying before we were on the mics, my creative partner is my lifelong best friend, the person I, other than my, my wife, my kids, the person I trust the most in the world. And so the two of us, like you guys are able to actually talk this stuff out super rationally and productively and never with, with ego. I should introduce us. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Gobbleman. <laughs> Sorry, we just slipped into it. Thanks for listening. This is uh, my guest today is Getty Lee, who is a legend for many reasons. Um, lead singer, songwriter, bass player, which is what he wants to talk about today. And we're going to talk about a lot <laughs> because he's just written an, a new book called Eddie Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass. Which is a gorgeous book. I got to look through about 40 pages of it. And oh, thank you. it was you guys sent me about 40 pages and it's gorgeous and I loved reading about it. And um, I really like bass players. And um, so I, I was very fascinated by it. Um, of the band Rush, which I didn't say. And I, I, it, it's a weird thing, man. And you've experienced this your whole life, of course. But I've been listening to your music since... I was 14, I'm 52 years old. So, it, and it's an odd thing, right? Cause we have this relationship that you have no part of right. that I've had with you for a very long time. <laughs> and no, it must be, yeah. st- I'm sure you're completely used to that now, but it is still a, a fact of your life that's an odd fact of life. Yeah, it is. And my life is full of moments like that. Uh, and of course I don't understand it the way you understand it. So I don't feel what you're feeling. Uh, you can't, of course. I can't, but I just roll with it, you know. And I've learned to be very considerate when someone is is sharing that stuff with me because I have felt that way with many other artists. You know, we're we're all we all have people that we are engaged with without their knowledge, and people we have been influenced by or people we respect for their work. And you do occasionally in this life, if you're fortunate, get to meet them. It's not always a pleasant experience, but I would say 80% of the time, it's a very interesting experience. You always get, I mean, I always find I learn something out of it and, and, and on a much, much lower level than you, I experience it from your side too, right. because of the movies and shows. And it is like a sort of fascinating dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to let people down. Yeah. And so exactly. far you have, just, you know, it's worked, it's cool. <laughs> it's all fine. But, but here's the, the extra pressure that I feel, and I'm sure you know this, is that Rush fans, I'm scared to even call myself a Rush fan because Rush fans, like uh, this is the true stuff. And I just want to disclaim, I, I want this disclaimer. First, uh, this is for context. We put a scene in Billions last year um, that mentioned Rush. I'm going to show it to you. Uh, okay. I don't know if you've seen it. But yeah, somebody sent it to long. me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just going to explain this. This is a scene between Taylor Mason and Bobby Axe around Billions. And the timing? How soon do you want the money? Oh, the year 2112. We'll do the raise as a celebration of Rush's second best album. That's why we got you in here today. You mean moving pictures is number one. But I think it goes hemispheres, then a farewell to Kings, then 2112, then pictures. Well, you would. So, <laughs> so um, That's great. Th- well, thank you. But the, the thing of it is, I was so nervous to get that wrong when I was writing that dialogue exchange. <laughs> you don't want to uh, risk the ire of the Rush manias. No, and I, look, I saw the band seven times. I've been, I, I have... I had every record on vinyl. I had every record on CD. I have all of them on Spotify and iTunes. I've been listening to Rush my whole life. They're one of the few bands I've continued to listen to from that age. Yet I know that for Rush fans, I'm not a Rush fan. I'm just a guy who listens to Rush sometimes. (laughs) So I just want to say, I'm going to get stuff wrong. Like I really can't do the track listings forward and backwards. I don't know every (laughs) release, what the B-sides were. Um, So... I apologize to the real I, I, Rush I think, fanatics. I'm going to apologize for just being, <laughs> you know, like 
um, a loyal fan and not a. I think they would accept you. Oh well, I don't know. I got so when I crowdsourced that. Mm-hmm. This is the thing. I I crowdsourced those lines because I wanted to get them right. Okay. And I got like 750 responses in four minutes of people telling me what you. I said well, if you were you know if you're what would a real Russian nerd say is are the four records and then Getty people sent me spreadsheets that they'd been working on. Oh my God. <laughs> Spreadsheets they've been working on um, about Rush albums for 20 years, for their whole lives. I, I, I won't take them out and show them to you, but more than three people sent me documents that were longer than 15 pages. Oh my God. Every reason that the records were ordered. <coughs> so would you take a sip of coffee? Excuse so we try ourselves, get it best. So why do you think Rush fans have this sense of ownership? Um. It's a really good question, and uh, it's not. I'm not sure I can answer correctly, but I can just share my observations. For example, last night, uh, yesterday, I did a signing in New Jersey, and uh, there were a thousand people that showed up, and uh, I cannot tell you how many people were emotional about coming in contact with me, and it, you know, one guy uh, basically told it like it is. He says, I feel like Luca Brazzi. I've been rehearsing what I'm going to say to you. <laughs> That's a perfect reference for me. <laughs> Through the whole thing. And I just got to get it right because I know I only have a couple minutes. And I'm, he's, you know, he said, I'm already longer than I'm supposed to be with you, but I need to explain this to you. And um, it's all about something that we have done and some message that's come from our music that affected these people profoundly and in a very positive way. And they pay homage to that all the time. And I think it also is partly because of the fact that we were so under the radar and not a mainstream band that this became a secret secret club, a secret kind of ownership of of what we were doing that they loved and the fact that people didn't know about it. it, On the one hand, it upset them that more people didn't know about it. But on the other hand, they loved being in that club because, you know, it's like they, they know something that these other people don't know. And years of that, I think, have built up this intensity. So uh, I can't answer it in, in any more uh, explicit way than that. You're talking about a certain kind of mainstream acceptance, though, because yeah. even in, I mean, in 1980, you guys became one of the biggest bands in the world by selling out, if we talk about selling out venues and, mm-hmm. and everything, and that's that's a long time ago now, right? That's, that's true. 38 years ago yeah. or something. But mainstream uh, uh, magazines and, uh, you know, Rolling Stone, uh, and mainstream television yeah. uh, pretty much ignored us. <laughs> Yet, you know, slowly but surely, classic rock radio, we were becoming a staple on classic rock radio, et cetera. I remember uh, the Rolling Stone thing where they all the reasons that they say they didn't hate Rush. You know, that, remember that thing from like <laughs> no, the late nineties? They did this big article like uh, proof that we haven't always hated Rush, <laughs> which, and then half the thing is like all the reasons it was clear that they did. But do, Getty, do you think part of the this particular sort of connection because it's not really even using the word fan feels wrong to me because there's this familial thing. Mm-hmm. There's uh, has to do with the earnestness with which you three approached your task. That uh, in an in an ironic age, uh, and and you know you you this all happened during the birth of the age of irony in a way in the culture. Mm-hmm. And your band was to, to um, although sometimes your lyrics you could be sarcastic or snide or understand sort of formal irony, you weren't ironic as a band. You were earnest, right. Right. which is a was a risky, to me it seems, a risky posture to take in an era of a certain kind of cool. And, and do, do, you, do you think that has something to do with it, that, that you weren't afraid to show how much it all meant to you and how much sort of living a certain way meant? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think uh, there's uh, that earnest, earnest sort of attitude is not hip. And I think that rings true with other people out there that 
don't consider themselves very hip in, in a sense. Uh, so there's a kind of connection. Uh, and some of the things we talk about in our lyrics, which, you know, the hipsters, or I don't mean hipsters in terms of fashion, but, you know, the hipper rock well, the in, intellectual cognizant, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. That's okay. That's a better phrase. Uh, you know, they scoff at that kind of thing, uh, but some of those same lyrics strike a chord with our fans in a real sense. Like I don't know how many uh, people said to me yesterday, "You got me through uh, university. Uh, you got me through a terrible time in my life." Or, you know, my uh, husband has been ill. And you, you know, you made it better. Uh, so when somebody says that to me, I, like I well up because you cannot believe that something you've worked on has had that kind of impact on someone else's life. I mean, these, these are the things you don't realize about what you're doing, you know. You go through your life, you're, you're selfishly making your own music. You're, you're doing things according to your vision. And in a sense, it has to be somewhat selfish because you're doing it for yourself. Uh, and you hope people like it out there, but you never imagine that kind of effect on, you know, one or two people, let alone hundreds of people. Although there's something about the way you were determined, as you were talking about earlier, to keep the standards high yeah. that speaks to satisfying that itch in yourself, but also an awareness. We're delivering this yeah. for people, so we have to make it. Well, I think there's, there's something about you know, we always did what we want, wanted to do or felt we needed to do without any thought about the consequences. Uh, you know, we, I expected failure with every album. Well, so, you know, we had nothing to lose. Uh, you know, after we did Caress of Steel, yeah. you know, and we went, holy crap, what a weird record we, we just made. And, uh, uh, and we got so much heat from so many quarters that we didn't know we gave up guessing who would like what and so we just you know we did 2112 did, and did we, you not know 2112 did you not like when you listen to 2112 the overture into the temple of Syrings, did you did you not say to yourself oh we've we've done something different here like this is a this is this is going to change our fortunes at all. I mean, you talk about it a little in the documentary, but what happened during Caress, and I've watched both the recent documentaries a few times, but were you really not thinking about how it would be received? We really were not. We really did not think people would like it. Uh, we, we were happy with it, and we thought, wow, this, this works. Uh, I'm pleased with it. Uh, you know, as pleased as you can ever be with a piece of work when it's taken from you. And, uh, you know, because I'm always like, no, but, but, but just I, one more thing. <laughs> uh, but no, we really were naive about that. We, we, and we uh, didn't possess at that time the ability to stand back and judge our own work. You know, I don't know if you ever really can, but certainly at that period of our life, we, expected another uh, thumbs down from the record company. Well, the the thing you talk about, about the thing you've learned to do of wait till the next morning, you know, that's the, that's like um, was Ma Norman Mailer's entire approach. And after oh, he really? finished writing, he would make himself go do something else, mm -hmm. walk away yeah, and then not engage again until the morning and just yeah. let his subconscious work on it so he could be fresh yeah. when he approached the page. It's I'm, both things can work. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that, you know. I yeah, uh, how did you learn to trust because watching the documentaries and then reading all the interviews with you, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are writers, artists, musicians, people trying to do it, people who are told they're delusional. Because, right? right? An artist, I, I say this often, the line between being a successful artist and being delusional is incredibly thin. Right up in, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're crazy right up yeah. until someone says you're not, yeah. until someone likes what you're doing. There's that great moment when, you're, when you say your parents didn't know until you were on television you were an entertainer. But- how did you, um, how valuable was Alex in this, but also how did you and he together train yourselves to trust your inner voice? Because it, I don't, I think we're all born with some self-doubt or maybe you weren't, but most of us are. Oh, yeah. How did you learn that the only thing that mattered was taking your, your own counsel first and then to trust that Getty? What was the process? Well, I think that's connected to, uh, I think it's connected to youthful 
arrogance, you know. Um, uh, was I insecure as a young writer player? Yeah, fabulously insecure, um, you know. Uh, was Alex less so, but still a little. I mean, we were all nerdy kids that in, in one way or another came out of the suburbs as sort of outcasts, you know. Alex, less so than Neil and I, but I know what Neil went through in St. Catharines. And, you know, I remember the one of the early times talking to Neil's mom, and she turned to me and said, well, you know, he was a weird child. <laughs> so think about that. When your mom knows you're a weird child and you're growing up in, in a suburb, uh, you're going to be considered weird by others. So that breeds insecurity. So we all had a, a, a typical amount of teenage nerdist insecurities. So you counter that by, you know, finding a, a uniting cause and the uniting cause is music. And then you learn that music and then you know that music and you can argue that music and that gives you confidence. I wonder, I was just about to ask you the, the technical proficiency that mm. you both had and that Neil clearly had. Do you think that was a form of armature? Yes, absolutely. Because you reinforce, you know, everybody split in the amount of, you know, neurotic behavior versus knowledgeable action, right? So the better you get at a thing, the stronger that side of your, uh, you know, toolkit is. And so you have confidence in what you're doing because that's the thing you know really well. And, you know, the music around you, you study it and then you know really you know it really well. You can talk about it and then you can proceed with that sort of badge of being in a band. It's, I think, much easier when you're in a band to be like that because you have uh, fellow soldiers, so to speak. I often say that getting to write the first screenplay with my partner knowing the two of us were doing this together. Yeah. Now, our wives were very supportive of all that stuff, but the, knowing that, hey, the t if the, the two of us are in it is powerful. But but also this this idea of um, often, often certain experts will say, uh, hey, this idea of chasing your dream is foolhardy. Uh, but I think part of that is because often people think, uh, they focus on the dream part, not the rigor required to chase right. it. And it seems to me you approached this rigor with a lot of rigor from the beginning. Where do you think that came from? I think it comes from insecurity. I think that, you know, I go out on stage and I don't think people are foolish. I think they can hear every mistake I make. I think even if it's the smallest wow. glitch, they can hear it. So the best way to defend yourself from that is to to know it inside out. And we all are like that. We all rehearse like we're rehearsal freaks. I, I've talked to other bands. No other band I've ever met rehearses as much as we do. You know, we for, a, for an average tour, for example, even, you know, our last tour, two weeks rehearsing by yourself to remember all the songs that you wrote all those years ago and to learn the new ones all over again because, you know, recording a song is not the same as performing a song. Uh, then four to six weeks band rehearsals, you know, as the three of us, no production. Then two weeks full-on rehearsals before the very first show. So that's a lot of rehearsals. Some bands go out there, they rehearse for a week and they're out. They rehearse for two days. Some yeah. bands rehearse for two days. Yeah. And they'll rent the LA Coliseum for two days. <laughs> and that's and it. And that's it. Yeah, then yeah. they'll go. Like maybe they're better than us, I guess. Uh, but, um, and I know with Neil, you know, Neil suffers from stage fright. So how do you overcome stage fright is know your material so well that even when your brain is going, you know, wonky from the stage fright, uh, you can play it by rote, you know. Yeah, it it, it seems to me that the your your uh, this this sort of averred fear of failure you're talking about is actually twinned with being very comfortable with failing over and over until you get right, get good. It seems like yeah. you, that's what all that rehearsal is. Yeah, actually creating a space in which you can fail. Yeah, which the fear of that kind of failure cripples a lot of people. Right, that's they right. don't want to even write alone at home. Because they're so scared of not being great right away. Yeah. But but, but you're scared. You're somehow aware that the private failures don't matter. No, they don't. I mean, we when people come off uh, backstage after a show, 
if it's a terrible show. Uh, you know, most people don't see that, that it was terrible, but we're backstage depressed. And you people come back and, and they want to pat you on the back and give you a hug and tell you how great you were. And yet the three of us look like, you know, death warmed over. It's like, what's wrong, guys? I said, well, we felt like we gave a bad show tonight. You know, I fucked up this, you know, my, my, I was singing out of tune and, uh, you know, typical do you still do that? stuff. Yeah, do you still absolutely. say that to people? Uh, I took, David Mamet says when someone comes backstage, uh, you just, even if you know it was miserable, you just go, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, yeah. thank you. No, you get better at, put it on them. Yeah, you do get better at not admitting it publicly. I can't but. believe you still beat yourself <laughs> up like that. That's amazing. You're, you know, having all this success and yeah. being so good for so long. I'm going to get us right back to Getty Lee as quickly as I can. Um, There's an easy company to talk about. I use Dropbox. I use it every day. I use it many, many times a day, way before they asked me to do an ad. It really, really works. Imagine a workplace with no distractions or disruptions, no endless searching to find the latest version, no constantly switching between apps. Now imagine a place where everything just flows. Look, at Dropbox, they're building a home for all of your team's work and the conversation around it with a suite of tools that maximizes inspiration and minimizes distractions. Because when teams are in flow, everything just clicks. Visit dropbox.com forward slash flow. Dropbox, keep teams flowing. I, I got to say, uh, Dave and I use it to collaborate on scripts. It is a genius application. Most things don't work. This works perfectly. Go get Dropbox. Hearing about you, I watched a bunch of these interviews chasing down the sound of the special bass. What was it, a Fender 1972 bass that started this journey? Uh, yeah, my Fender jazz bass was a 1972 jazz that I bought in a pawn shop uh, in the late 70s in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And it just was a thing I bought because, uh, you know, I was a Rickenbacker man. I died in the wool Rickenbacker man. So I bought this because it was... It was pawn shop hunting. Rick, Rickenbacker because of McCartney. Or uh, Chris Squire. Chris Squire from Yes. Yeah, Chris Squire. Uh, what made, did McCartney play? He, he well, uh, he played a Hofner uh, a 501 violin bass. That's his iconic instrument. But if And you, then Chris Squire was the- Chris Squire was from the- Yes, was yeah, the Rickenbacker. Was the Rickenbacker guy. But if you remember the All You Need Is Love broadcast by the Beatles, uh, McCartney was holding a Rickenbacker. He played he played a Rickenbacker bass on that. Right. And that's the first time I ever saw Rickenbacker Ah, so it wasn't bass. McCartney originally. You saw it in his hands. Yeah, and I saw it in his hands. I didn't know what it was because it was the weirdest looking thing with this- huge yeah. horn and and uh so that planted a seed for me and then the love of chris squire's playing and the music of yes made me want to be that guy you know i wanted to play like him i wanted to sound like him uh i had about you know five or six guys i wanted to sound like and uh, maybe that's the blessing because you try to sound a little bit like all of them and then next thing you know you've got because you can't, you can't sound like any of them because you're not any of them. Every player has his own sound, just like we have our own fingerprints. Uh, so the failure to sound like your heroes and the combination and the more confidence you get in yourself is what creates your own playing personality. This is a huge thing to say. There's this, um, there's this literary scholar named Harold Bloom who's taught at Yale. He's like 80 and he wrote this book, The Anxiety of Influence and his theory. Right is exactly what you just said. His theory is writers try to imitate their favorite writers, but the great ones like the Getty Lees, in trying to imitate it, they mm -hmm. fail to imitate it and they end up creating an original piece of work that it is somehow strange, strange, yeah. different. No one's heard us sound exactly like that yeah. before. And I think that's exactly, that makes I complete believe, sense that that's what that. happens. Yeah, I, that's what I've come to believe that uh, uh, artistic personality is, you know. It, but it has to be combined with confidence in your in yourself. Well, the profession that you've yeah, worked at. That's right. At building your own thing. There has to be a strong measure of that for your own personality to come out. Because if you're always living with the dread of failure, of not being Chris yeah. Squire or not being Jack Bruce, without that confidence side of it, of successes in another area of it, then you you fall in you 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 turn in on yourself and that that's not a good thing so you have to it has to be equal measure i think imagine that jack bruce was able to do that with ginger baker and his band 
and they, and you they watched fought, that documentary and they fought like cats and well, dogs you right? watch that documentary you can't can you imagine if that guy was your drummer as oh great god. as he oh my god as great a player yeah. but what was great about that documentary and what i loved that it showed was what a strong musical entity uh ginger breaker as a drummer was he was so much more than a drummer and I don't think a lot of people realize you mean the that. force that he, yeah, that he was, the creative force, and, and, and the arranger that he was. Oh, yeah, and fascinating that you can you can see a sort of kinship, uh, entirely different personalities. But Ginger Baker, like Neil, kept trying to reinvent and get mm. better and play with these jazz play. He right, he kept yeah. trying to find a new way to make yeah. the sound. And if he hadn't been so self destructive, uh, you know. How many other great records would we be able to enjoy by by him? But, no, of course. Sorry, yeah. I was just when you mentioned it, like yeah. Jack Bruce was so great. But I mean, I can't that you know that kind of chaos bomb in the middle of your trio. Yeah. Well, and poor Eric Clapton, you know, he's you know who loved them both in their own sort of ways, and yet, you know, uh, you know he was uh, Ginger's defender. Uh, in so many ways, but he, you know, he just couldn't cope. He just couldn't cope with it. No, and you, you had this har harmonious thing in in your band, with, yeah. Right, you somehow the three of you kept that level of respect. Yeah, that's you know, I think when I look back and 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 when I when I saw the documentary that was first done of us, which is hard for me to watch those things. The, which are the two? The two recent uh, ones? The one of the last tour, or the big long one. The big long one, yeah. Uh, because I remember talking to the, the documentarists when they first approached us. They said, well, we want to do a documentary on you. And we said, why? Uh, they said, well, we, we think there's a story there. And I go, well, what's the story? We go, We're not really sure, but we know there's one. I said, well, okay, but don't come crying to me when you find out we're really three boring guys. Uh, and in the end, when I saw what they put together and how that was so much about our relationship and our interaction with each other. Uh, I hadn't really thought of it until that time that really that's so important and why we were able to work together for so long. So two things related to that, that I've been thinking about a, a lot, like since I saw that documentary the first time when it first came out, um, and they're both related to you and Neil. One is that the premise of this podcast from the beginning when I started it like a couple hundred episodes ago, was I'm fascinated by moments in people's lives, what I call inflection points, where they're, they have the, the, the beginning, the dawning of something great. And I'm, mm -hmm. I always wonder what you know, uh, the awareness people ha have is. So, you know, you guys do a great job of describing Neil coming to audition. And then you and Alex both say, well, he was so great on the drums. And Neil talks about, I thought I sucked, but it was fine. We, we got to do it. What I'm wondering is now you'd already had success. Working Man was a big hit in America. You were on your way. Was there any awareness at the very beginning that this guy might be the best drummer in the world and this might actually, like, did you have any sense of, because you were a musical scholar even then, did you have any sense like, wait a second, this is, the three of us together now <laughs> are this thing. Well, first of all, I wouldn't say we were very scholarly when that time when Neil first came in. And we had started to get a bit of a buzz, but we weren't anywhere near successful. Uh, so it was kind of a nervous thing to, to replace our drummer. And so when he came in and he started playing, like I knew within 30 seconds that I'm not letting this guy walk out the door because I have never heard a drummer like this. And Alex was really pissed at me because we had this agreement that we wouldn't uh, make any decision till we'd heard all of them, right? <laughs> this is great. And he, uh, so he was really being very pissy and he wasn't talking much to Neil because he was mad at me. Because you could tell that you were well, already was like, hey, this is the band. He was in the band already. I'm already talking about what kind of music he likes, you know, uh, you know how he likes to dress on stage and shit like that. And Alex is just fuming. He's looking at me. He's really upset with me. And then he walked away and, 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 Alex, you know, let let me know how upset he was about it. And I said, you know, man, he's a monster. You heard him. And you have to remember, he's a tall guy, right? He's like 6'1 or 6'2. And he, at that time, played a very small drum kit. Like he had really small double bass drums. I'd never seen double bass drums that were only like 18 inches. So he looks like a monster behind this, you know, drum kit. 
and he plays with these triplets and the power coming from the drum set honestly was mind-blowing and uh, we had written this uh, intro to anthem ages ago and john rutzi you know couldn't play it wasn't interested in playing because it, it was in uh, seven four and he hated odd time signatures and so we jammed it with him and he just like like Neil just that. got it he instantly. Just, he just played it and it propelled, and that was the song anthem, essentially. It started that song. So really jamming with him for two minutes, we already had written the beginning of anthem. So I knew in my brain instinctively that I'm not letting this guy go. And we had to audition two other drummers after that. I think it was, no, one other drummer after that. And it was really sad. It was really sad. Well, I really sure, felt but also it must have been great in a way because you could look at Alex like, you see, is this what you? you yeah, know? yeah, it was very much. Is this much what like you want, that. man? Yeah, like, but that's a, essentially, in a nutshell, that's a difference between Alex and myself. He's very uh, emotional. He's a much more emotional uh, and spontaneous person than I am, and I'm a little more methodical. But in that case, it sounds like you were more <laughs> impulsive. It sounds like you actually quickly went like. Uh, yeah, but that was just common sense. Oh, that me. was just the rational thing. That like, was rational. I was like, this guy is fucking amazing. I'm not letting him go. And Alex was emotional because I had, he had felt I had betrayed our agreement. Sure, but also as a, but you'd served it ultimately, but you, the bigger agreement, which is, <laughs> yeah. right? The bigger agreement, which yeah. is we're going to go become- Get the best, this, uh, this get band. the best drummer. But also as the bass player, although, you know, you guys are trios, so everybody has, I mean, as a bass player, you're connected yeah. to the drummer, right? Oh, yeah. In a way. Well, in a trio, you're the rhythm section. There's only two of you. Well, I'm gonna, I have questions about bass, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to. Sure. But the other question related to Neil while we're here is, the other moment in all the things I've read, you're, it's always like a very, again, hyper-rational sort of a decision to ask Neil to write the words. Oh, this guy's reading all the time. He's got a big vocabulary. But as an artist, the thing that I've, I just haven't seen you answer, I'm sure you have, mm -hmm. is you're a really good lyricist. Not only a good lyricist, but you wrote a song that connected with people in a very deep way, mm -hmm. in a Springsteen kind of a way, right? People always said Zeppelin, right. but that song, Working Man is a Springsteen meets Zeppelin. That's what the thing that you did that people, you know, um, right? That's why that song connected in a certain way. You had over this complex, cool music, you had a very direct lyrical line to mm -hmm. what you saw in the world, right? You observed it and you wrote about it. And then you seeded this part of your artistic voice to somebody. Yeah. Because you felt like, oh, maybe he'd do a better job. But I, I wonder, uh, I've just always wondered about what that felt like to you because you, you, it wasn't like you weren't good at it. Like you were really good at it. Well, I didn't think I was any good at it. So uh, again, that's the insecurity thing we were talking about. I, I was insecure about my lyrics because originally in Rush, I wasn't the lyricist, uh, John Rutsey was, but he had issues. And the day, you know, you've heard the story, the day we went to, I went to record all the vocals, he tore up all the lyrics. Yeah. So I literally sat down and wrote lyrics for every song uh, the night before I had to sing them. So. Uh, so I didn't have much confidence because it was, uh, I always saw myself as a temp. <laughs> you, you, you it know. never mattered. So it didn't matter to you in no, that I way didn't. to have that personal expression. And did you feel like working man hit just because of the, the, did you never think to yourself, well, I, because I think I would, maybe I'm weaker and I would think, well, we, I, I wrote these lyrics. They connected to people. I didn't think of that. I thought it was a song. I thought it was a music. You know, I thought people dug the music. I didn't think they were getting a, a particularly strong message from it. So that was just me being an idiot, I guess. I didn't recognize the scope of what I had written. When did you, but I mean, over time you started to, I imagine you Obviously, started to connect yeah, that, yeah. that that the stuff you were singing, whether you wrote yeah. it or Neil wrote it. But I thought it was sort of, you know, uh, teenage, you know, pablum kind of stuff. I thought they were uh, more, uh, there were deeper topics that we could be handling. In the, As the band got more ambitious musically, I thought the lyrics should be more ambitious. And I thought I was a fairly straight ahead uh, lyric writer. And did you ever find yourself, I mean, I know you've you wrote lyrics on a couple of songs throughout the mm -hmm. time, but did you ever find yourself in any way regretting it or feeling like no you... i didn't no i didn't regret it uh you know i i love working with neil uh as a songwriting 
partnership. Yeah, I think he's a lyrical genius. I mean, I, I'm, uh, a, I'm the biggest, uh, I'm a gigantic Neil Peart fan. I mean, I think he's oh, a great. super genius. Uh, yeah. Well, so, I, yeah, I love working with him. He's so great to work with. His ideas are inspiring to me. And him, just knowing him has been a catalytic effect on my life, you know, because I never met anyone like him before or since. Uh, well, he's sui generis. He is. He's a, yeah. he's, he's a, 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 a unique genius. Yeah, he's he's There's, he's an original thinker, and uh, uh, just a, a great person to have been fortunate enough to spend you know forty years of my life uh, as a collaborator with. You know, it's just fantastic. But so I never regretted not doing the lyrics. And then uh, when we had that five years away, uh, while Neil was going through his uh, really difficult yeah, time, horrible time, yeah, uh, I. Uh, I did my own record. Yes, you did the song where you wrote the words. And I wrote the lyrics. And I was surprised how that came about. And I really felt pretty good about some of the things I was saying on that album. And uh, I haven't listened to that album in years. And I listened to it the other day and I went, oh, that stands up. That's, that's I not, listened to that's it last night. Bad. I listened to the whole album last night. <laughs> and, it, and I read the words. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Because yeah, so, well, um, Derek Hass, who's our mutual good friend, was like, uh, I told Getty you do the homework. And then I was like, fuck, I better do the homework. <laughs> if Derek said I do the homework. Thanks, Derek. I better do the homework. No, I had already obviously done a lot of the homework. But I went and um, listened again. Yeah, that record totally stands up, actually. Uh, and the lyrics stand up. But I was trying to I was trying to find the, the differences in a way. But mm -hmm. you, you've influenced each other. Oh, for sure. I mean, the lyrics on My Favorite Headache were definitely influenced by Neil. I feel that. Yeah. I was reading it and I was like, well, these guys have been in this partnership. Of course, we, you know, you start to turn into each other in a little, uh, in many ways when you're a long, when you have a long-term partner. That's why your sense of humor you know, becomes one. That's how, why you can make each other laugh so easily. Like even now, uh, you know, Alex and I went to visit Neil a couple weeks ago and we were hanging out at dinner and you, the, suddenly you're at a table of six people but really there's only three people there. And the conversation you're having is only between myself, Alex and Neil. And we're saying things that most people are not twigging on, yet Alex, Neil and myself are all laughing. Why are we laughing? Yes. Because we've, we've left the table, you know, and we're now talking rush talk. We're now <laughs> in that mindset and that's what makes you brothers. And it's not a friendship, it's not a brotherhood, it's something else. And it's really special. And uh, you have that your whole life, whether you're, you're retired or not retired, you know, you have that your whole life. I, I relate so hard to it because when it always happens, David and I are in a place working at a table, we could be 12 people from the crew of our show and we'll just catch up as you, you know, you catch eyes. Yeah. And suddenly the two of us are in Weibo, you know, in Montana <laughs> together. Remember, yeah. we're, you know, we're in New York City, but we remember what the sheriff said when we were in Weibo, Montana. Right. That's just the way that I completely get that. All right. Can you talk about the role of the bass player? Because uh, this this book is all about bass guitars, but it's filtered through the lens of a bunch of bass players who played this bass, right. why they did, what it meant, what it meant to you as you were searching for this sound. To me, the bass player is like the glue guy on a sports team, the person mm -hmm. who holds the whole thing together. Right. But why has bass held such a fascination for you, right? You're a, you can write on the guitar, you're a keyboard player. Yeah. What is it about the bass guitar and what did you see the role of the bass guitarist as? Well, I never chose to be the bass player, you know. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's like uh, the catcher in baseball or, or the goalie, you know. Nobody chooses to be that thing. I always related drummers to being that thing, but maybe the bass player is that thing too. Um, so it was my adoptive instrument. Uh, I was a guitar player for a mere couple of months before I became a bass player. But um, it's just a fascinating instrument and I just fell so in love with it. And once you start listening to the bass in songs, it's like a secret society, you know, because uh, I was, you, you listen to great old Motown songs or, or uh, pop songs of the 50s and 60s. You don't realize how much melody is being provided to the song down in the nether regions, right? Down where the vocal is not singing and it plays off the vocal. And it also has, it has two jobs to, to provide a counter melody and to help the drums 
be smooth. You know, you meld with the drummer and you've got this rhythm track. And without that, a song doesn't go anywhere. You know, if it doesn't groove, it, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. So uh, I think it's an important gig, but I'm the bass player. So why wouldn't I think that? Uh, so when I started doing this project uh, and I got this obsession with collecting these instruments and learning about uh, where this instrument had come from, uh, which I felt sort of dumb because here I was at 42 years with this instrument in my hand and I couldn't tell you anything about the first two years of its existence, you know. So I felt it was, I owed it to the instrument to do my homework and do my research. So uh, that required a lot of reading, a lot of talking, and I much prefer talking to other experts and other bass players to get my information than, than a, a book, which can be very dry, uh, which is why I tried to make this book anything but dry. Um, so that just became a journey to me. And I have to say the most fun I had through the whole project was talking to other bass players. Talking to John Paul Jones and Les Claypool. Yeah, and Bill Wyman and, and even guys that were collectors rather than bass players, not famous guys. There's a guy in L.A. named Ken Collins who's, uh, you know, been collecting for years. And, and another one of my friends, Alan Rogan, who worked for The Who since the 70s, and uh, he's quite a character. And, and Jeff Tweedy, who was a fabulous guy to sit down and talk with. He'd be a great now, guy. I'm, I don't I'm, know. I'm embarrassed you, that I'm wearing a Sunvolt sweatshirt and talking. <laughs> <laughs> about Tweety, but which is you know, uh, I'm a Tweety fan too. Uh, but I'm a Sunvolt, I'm bigger Sunvolt fan. Anyway, okay. no, Wilco's great. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Tweety and you talk too. Yeah, and and Tweety's and, awesome. I get letters, people yelling. Yeah. I love Tweety. He's great. Don't okay. yell at me that okay. I just like Jay Farrar's music a little better. All right. Well, uh, in any event, uh, it became such a, a, a you know full kind of journey for me that I was just living this instrument and and the people that played it and. Uh, it, I just learned so much. Uh, it was such a mind-expanding uh, endeavor. Yeah, it's a, oh, it was a, it's a pleasure to read those conversations that you had and then to hear you, hear you talk about them. Um, did you gain an understanding about the way these different players approached the instrument? Did it, did it make you eager? Did your playing, have you seen yet? Is your sort of playing or your attack been influenced by any of this in a different way? It was obviously, you talk about how it was influenced in the beginning by these yeah, people. Yeah. Well, our, everyone that's in the book has had an effect on me pretty much uh, in one way or another, uh, but probably more in the formative years than now. But the thing that I take away from this is having learned so much about the instrument. And you see, for me, uh, instrument was always a tool. Bass was a tool, yes. a tool to, to get me to a sonic place. Sure. And now that I have so many of these beauties all around me and I've learned so much about them, I'm eager to apply that and to challenge my sense of my own identity. And I sort of did that on the R40 tour. I brought 27 instruments out and I played them in all these songs that had previously had either a jazz bass or a Rickenbacker bass or a Steinberger, etc. And the song still worked and they all still sounded great to me. And I think in a, in a way, me playing a Gibson Thunderbird for the first time in a song like Animate, it was like, wow, I brought something new to the song. So uh, it's, it's the ultimate confirmation that your identity as a player comes from your fingers. Yes. And you can change the bass and you can challenge your sense of your own sound uh, by using another thing and you'll still be you. So my, it's safe to do that, guys. You know? It's awesome. My biggest disappointment in that Bohemian Rhapsody um, movie was that they didn't spend, and I, as a professional, I understand why, but they didn't spend two reels talking about Brian May's guitar tone, right? Which right. is, there's nobody's ever had a guitar tone, anything like Brian May's absolutely. guitar tone. I absolutely tone. agree with you. And... um people have spent years trying to find it, but of course it's Brian May's fingers, right? Yeah. If Brian May picked up Alex's guitar. And those big, thick metal plectrums he used. Yeah. What were they, the pit, yeah. pound coins or something? Is that how, it, yeah. But that, you know, if he picked up Alex's guitar and Alex picked up Brian May's rig, 
Alex would sound more like Alex and yeah. Brian May would sound more like Brian May even playing through that rig, right? A- absolutely true. This is what you, a fascinating sort of discovery. But just a small, uh, tell a, me, a, a small uh, uh, argument to that. Please is make this. it. Okay. So you know way more about this than I do. No, make no. I mean, yeah. I, I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. And, and I've said that too, but this is the, the paradox for me is that when I picked up Jocko Pastorius's yes. bass and I played a couple of notes, it sounds like Jocko. But this is the difference. I can make a Jocko noise. You're Getty Lee. No, no. It so you can make a Jocko noise. That's why I, you can make a Jocko noise. I can make a Jocko noise for a few seconds. But over the course of a song, you can tell that it's not Jocko playing Jocko space. But the tone is there in a raw state, but the personality is not there. That makes total sense to me. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Um, I, all right, I want to switch gears and talk about a not as light a subject. Um, okay. Because, you know, uh, everyone who's a Rush fan knows your parents' story. Right. That they were in concentration camps right. during the Holocaust. And um, I've known many people who are the children of people from that. I come from a right. Jewish background also. I'm right. an atheist, but I come from a Jewish background. Um, but the, the way you mentioned its influence on your young life is certainly, you know, the, the sort of what the results of that on them and how they parented and their fears. Mm-hmm. And but I was reading that article from 94 where you, you say um, your mother couldn't imagine that there was really a society outside the camps. I mean, right. right. Because if there were, they would never allow this right. to occur. That was the story she told herself to help get her through it. Right. That's right. In yeah. some way. But I wonder how you feel if you could talk a little bit about the psychic effects of that on, on you during your life, because particularly now, I think it's useful. The times we're living in. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, 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 the the more, you know, when we talk about these things, it seems um, in the ether and it, and it seems um, abstract, but for you, it wasn't abstract. And I'm wondering if you just talk about the psychic effect of, of, of having parents who believe the world had abandoned them. To this heart. Well, um, there was obviously a lot of good and bad. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of scars that were transferred to me <laughs> uh, unwittingly. Uh, so I had a lot of anger, uh, you know, towards the German people that was, you know, irrational. Yeah, misplaced. Yeah, yeah misplaced. Uh, of course, you know, when I was a kid, I used to sit there and wish that Hitler would appear in my little bedroom so I could, you know, break his neck. So I had anger, uh, but also I felt it made me uh, separate from a lot of my friends. I felt, uh, in a sense, isolated from them because of this story that... And, you know, every child of the Holocaust, I think, carries the story with them. And it's mm. you can't shake that story. It's, it's part of what you have inherited from your parents. You've inherited their nightmare in a way. Uh, but my mother, bless her heart, uh, she's got such a healthy attitude. And she didn't hold anything back. Like, she told me everything when I was a kid. My brother and my sister as well. We heard all the stories. Because... uh, And she was basically a positive person, even though how positive can a Jewish mother really be? I mean, they're really always looking at the glass half empty. Uh, So she gave me an equal amount of paranoia, she passed on to me, but also an equal amount of survivor spirit. And the survivor spirit is really important. So she told the stories to us, as horrible as they were to listen to as a child. Can you imagine today if you did that, you'd be arrested, you know, with the kind of a trigger warning mentality we have, you some the neighbors would call the police on you. So these horrific tales we heard as as kids, we grew up with it, accepting that, you know, there's horrible stuff in the world and you have to be on guard. Uh, but she also had this in, you know, this this undeniable spirit to carry on and move forward and um and so she she gave that to us as well so uh when i when you know people often focus on uh if people want to be critical they'll focus on the randian libertarian streak in some of the lyrics during a certain period of, of rush but one thing that 
I think has always been there is an anti-authoritarian it, the 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 love of the individual and individual freedom is yeah. really an anti-authoritarianistic point of view, which I think is on all the records. There's yeah. a sort of uh, argument against groupthink that comes from an authoritarian figure, right? And exactly, a, um, a, a, an urging of everyone to find their 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 individual north star and to tear down this idea of authoritarianism. Of course, I mean that's what twenty twelve really is all about. Uh, and for me, the statements that we got from reading Anne Rand's material were... Sorry, they were... They were artistic. Her artistic manifesto. I mean, we were going through a time when everyone wanted us to conform and be more like uh, Bad Company, who was big at the time, or Bachman Turner Overdrive, who came from Canada. You know, why can't you sound like those guys? Sure. So the great I mean, Randy Bachman. This is this is really boiling this subject down to a to a practical I want to do that. Yeah, but, do it. But so at that time, we needed reasons to to keep doing this to to follow through on the crazy ideas that we felt we had. You know, how do you fight the whole uh, you know business trying to pressure you into being something you don't want to be? Sure. Uh, so reading her material about the strength of the individual, you know, Howard Rourke's defiant stance in, in Atlas Shrugged, um, or sorry, The Fountainhead. No, in The Fountainhead, and, yeah. and uh, uh, Dabney's in yeah. Atlas so Shrugged. So those characters uh, said to me, don't give up on your dream. Don't, don't compromise. You know, that's the message I needed to hear was don't compromise. And, and, and it wasn't one... Of fascism, or it was the op- no, no, yeah. it was the opposite yeah. of, of fascistic yeah. impulse. I mean, all yeah. your stuff. I mean, to me, many of Neil's lyrics than, than you you sang mm-hmm. are about freedom. Yeah, freedom of the individual. You know, f- uh, you know, especially in terms of artistic. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, integrity. I, I, Ayn Rand's b- b- uh, the objectivism to me and the sort of anti charitable impulse of it all drives me insane. Right. But the central idea of Howard Rourke and Peter Keating as these two ideals right. and Ellsworth Toohey as this critic, it's very clear why it resonated for Rush. Sure. That stuff, right? Ellsworth Toohey's every critic who ever shot on you guys right. uh, and <laughs> ignored the things. And Peter Keating is anyone who never bothered to learn how to play their instrument. And Howard Rourke was someone who was like, I'm going to follow my right. own vision. I mean, yeah. that all makes total so, sense. So yeah, you put that in the hands of a you know, 19, 20 year old and you see why that that's, you know, giving yep. you a bit of strength Die. to say, you know what, fuck this shit. Yeah, I'm not going to let the uh, modern yeah. capital L libertarian people change what you guys were singing about. Right. That This has nothing to do with the politics no, of no. today. Although, I, don't I do wonder how the authoritarianism around the world strikes you now, whether you think about it, that these authoritarian leaders have been elected, not in your yeah. country, but in all these other countries. Well, e- even in our As province a, of Ontario, we, oh, right. we have elected a, 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 you know, a, a tin pot Trump. Did you uh, campaign against him? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, amongst my own peeps, but I'm not an overtly political activist. But, but as a child uh, of Holocaust living, survivors and as yeah. someone who sang those songs, I just want to understand how you feel about the, the state of the world in this country we're in right now. Uh, it, it's very depressing to me. It's It, it makes me angry. And I think I, I share that with most liberal thinking people. Uh, you know, fortunately, I come from a, a very liberal country. Uh, and I, I think... I thank my lucky stars for that because we do have more liberal values inbred in our system. No doubt. Uh, because we have a social network. We don't rebel against, uh, uh, you know, socialized medicine. Uh, you know, I, I am happy living in that kind of world. You know, I believe in the social net. Uh, so, and that's foreign, especially in this country. You know, those are fighting words in this country, you know. But we've had, you know, socialized medicine for years, decades now. And even the conservatives in our country wouldn't dare mess with that. Right. That's just the state of play. Yeah. So when you have a Canadian who's a conservative, they're still, in in context of of your politics here, they're still pretty left. That all makes sense. All right. I got to get you out of here. So I'm just going to ask a couple more questions that I I promised myself I have to ask. Um, and then I will, I promise, I'll let you go. What do you, what do you do to check in with yourself? Like, do you meditate? Do you journal? Do you, how do you, or is it just practicing the base? What, what do you do to find your center? 
That's a good question. I mean, I, you know, playing always brings me back to square one. Uh, I don't really have any other. You don't have a practice like that, like a meditative practice no, or but long I am, walks. I am a walker. Oh, so long walks. Yeah, I am a walker. And my wife and I have become very serious about our walking. And we travel the world. Uh, uh, we are addicted to traveling to new places to walk. That's awesome. Uh, and so we do a heck of a lot of walking. Without music in your ears? No, or with music. It. You just, just walk together. I don't like to walk with music. I like to look around. I'm also a bird watcher so, uh, and a bird photographer. I'm an amateur bird photographer. So uh, I need to be listening to the bird song. Have you read those Jonathan Franz and birding essays? They're no, so I good. Haven't. Oh, check out in the New Yorker. Okay. Uh, Franzen writes a lot about birding in a really good way. Oh, cool. Uh, it would be interesting for you to see, I think. Okay, a couple more and then we're done, I promise. Um, what, what is your, I'm having fun. All right, so. good. What is your life like now not being, so you wrote the book. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what's your life like now after having all these years? Like what's the typical day? Do you, are, do you like not being scheduled as in the way that you were? I, I love not being scheduled, although my wife doesn't believe me when I say that. Why? <laughs> because she says, sometimes your resting face is a little too grumpy. <laughs> and awesome. that tells me that you wish you were doing something when you're not. So uh, I've always battled laziness, you know. Uh, it's, Workaholics often say that, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so. Uh, um you know, given the opportunity to sit and, and watch five episodes of Billions or, or you know, Power Watch. Uh, I just finished the fourth season of The Bureau this week. Right. One of my favorite shows. That's what you want to do. Yeah. I would do that for probably too long than is healthy to do. Uh, but then I counter that by getting too busy for five days and just being a complete maniac doing X, Y, and Z. So it's, I've been like that my whole life. And I think that's why I work so hard and rush because when I found something that I love to do, I can't, I can't, just can't stop thinking about it. And okay. the same with this book, you know, I, uh, I drove my, my writing partner for this book. I drove him out of his mind. He's never worked with anyone like me before. Cause you were obsessed. And we were friends for years. And I said to him, look, you know, uh, I'd love you to help me with this book just to tune my words to make sure that I'm, I'm expressing sure. myself correctly. Yeah. Uh, but I said, if, and he said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And I said, but I have to give you a warning. You know, we're friends and I'm not always the easiest person to work with because I get very obsessed with getting it right. And, uh, and you know, sometimes he would just turn to me and go, Getty, you don't have to shout at me. And I would say, oh, okay, sorry. Was I shouting? Uh, and you know, we're still friends. We survived it. And, uh, but you got into it. So are you, do you want to make music? I do. I would like to write again. I, uh, I feel like to me, this was a great, this book was aside from the, the obsessiveness of the collection yeah. and all that, this was a great take five moment for me. Uh, reassess myself. You know, it's hard to be in one band for 42 years and then just suddenly become another band, become another artist. That's, it's not, it's not a reasonable expectation for someone that thinks a lot about what they do, you know. I can't just start playing with this guy and that of guy course. and just pretend that the 42 years of my life that was dedicated to one thing didn't happen. So I needed time to process that and I'm still processing it. So the book was a great diversion. It was a great obsession and a great way of resetting my love of my instrument. So now I'm leaving myself open to see what naturally comes out and whether I have anything meaningful to say. Sure. But also Neil could, doesn't have to go on the road. He could just write you some lyrics. Um, you know, that's obvious. I'm glad to know you guys <laughs> had dinner uh, recently. Do you, when, when, when there are a couple of bass players, uh, a types of bass players, I know, you know, everyone in the, in the book is so technically is like super technically proficient. Right. I think, what do you think about, uh, do you understand why people like a band like Velvet Underground or John Cale as a bass player? Does it make any sense to you? Yeah. I mean, he was a keyboardist, but you know, he yeah, played yeah. bass on, mo he played most of the bass on those records. Sure. Like I think about a song like Pale Blue Eyes or something like that, mm -hmm. where it's simple, it's in a pocket. Does that, in, do you get it at all? Or oh, yeah. does it not 
makes sense to you. No, no, I get it. Of course I get it. I mean, I talked to some people that are not histrionic, like talking to Tina Weymouth. She's, right, sure, she's, perfectly she, said. You know, she's, I think she's a marvelous bass player and she's a lovely person. And, and I was, you know, I talked to her, I wanted her to talk about a certain instrument that that she's related to. And I talked to a lot of bass players that from very different backgrounds uh, to get a, a word or two uh, to understand their perspective on the instrument. But no, I'm not judgmental in that sense. You know, if it's a, I think a bass player's job is to suit the genre. You know, I, I don't think, a, you know, Tina Weymouth can't be playing, you know, John Entwistle riffs. It's not her job. She's got to serve the music. Did did you and Andy West ever talk about mm. from the Dregs? Because no, you were no. both playing the Stein in the Steinbergers. No, same, no, I've never talked to him. Yeah. Same time, so I thought he he was a great bass player too. Um, Getty, man, uh, I'm so moved and touched that you came over here. Thank you. It's very surreal to have you in my apartment. <laughs> but, <laughs> Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm sorry it's surreal for you. But no, I, it's good. It's so good. It. Surreal, not not bad. Surreal yeah, and. Yeah. Um, uh, what what a privilege. Getty is online. You can see him on Twitter or Instagram, I guess, sometimes. Do you each manage that Rush account? Uh, I don't. Uh, the person sitting behind me manages the Rush account. Uh, I, I sort of am involved in a, my uh, Instagram account. That's, so the Getty Lee yeah, Instagram that, account is where people can... That's, you know, that's me. That's you really doing yeah, the thing. Yeah. That's awesome. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. Rush fans, uh, I love you. I'm with you. If I got stuff wrong, I apologize. You don't have to tell me. Uh, but you can email me the moment, bk at gmail.com. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Getty Lee, Thank the you. great Getty Lee. Go, go read uh, and buy his book and go listen to all these records. Thanks, Getty. Thank you, Brian. <laughs>